I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. Here we can walk and talk. Why was it important for you to join this panel today? When Kimberly Crenshaw reaches out to you and says, I need you, you just say yes. I was raised correctly, you know, so yeah, I mean, I have a very unique career and I'm lucky that Kimberly Crenshaw thinks that makes me relevant to the kind of big earth-shaking conversations that she often wants to have. At the Sundance Film Festival each year, my team and I facilitate a panel called The Story of Us. You just heard comic, television host, and winner of the 2023 Sundance Vanguard Award, W. Kamal Bell. He was a speaker on our third iteration of the panel last year. We took the stage at the Filmmaker Lodge in Park City, Utah with him and three other special guests in front of a packed house. As you'll hear, this year's earth-shaking conversation was about Hollywood, censorship, and democracy. In the very first installment of The Story of Us back in 2020, we talked about the racial underbelly of the January 6th insurrection and its relationship to ways that cinematic storytelling about the U.S. has contributed to beliefs about who this country belongs to. In the years since, we've continued to use this series to discuss how the arts are affected by, as well as implicated in, attacks on our democracy. At this moment, we're living through an attack on the ways that race and our history can be talked about in schools and in workplaces. Anti-CRT bills, aka the war against woke, are limiting the ways that race and history can be taught to future generations. All across the country, organizations like the American Library Association are tracking more book bans than ever, and many of them are aimed at books with LGBTQ plus themes. My name is Jeannie Park, and I'm here in protest against all of the actions and attempts to censor and excise the history of African Americans, of marginalized communities, of trans students, the book banning, the, I mean, there's so much. It's a very, very, very long list. Book bans are accelerating at the fastest rate since the American Library Association first started tracking bans over 20 years ago. And it probably doesn't surprise you to hear that books featuring people of color and LGBTQ authors are among the most targeted. Now, you may wonder, what does all of this have to do with cinematic storytelling? Well, this kind of censorship has left its mark on Hollywood, too. There was a time when there were politically motivated witch hunts against artists in the film industry. And those witch hunts were very effective at chilling speech and political dissent. And perhaps it shouldn't be surprising to know that the McCarthy era was particularly devastating to artists who lifted up critical storytelling about America. 
1951, a movie called I Can Get It For You Wholesale premiered. It was about a woman named Harriet who turns down a marriage proposal in favor of advancing her career. While the movie had so many pro-capitalism messages and celebrates the all-American entrepreneurial spirit, the fact that the character who succeeded the most was a woman was deemed too un-American. The movie was banned from theaters for fear that it would brainwash the masses. Abraham Polonsky, who wrote the movie, was brought in for questioning, and he was also blacklisted from the film industry. After that point, writers were afraid to portray feminism in their scripts because they did not want to be accused of being a communist. It took decades for Hollywood to rebound from the blacklist on feminism. This is why, during the 1950s, in nearly every single film, we see the perfect image of a stay-at-home mum who has dinner ready by 5 p.m. The film industry was targeted because Hollywood plays a major role in forming who we think we are as a nation. Who belongs, who rules, and who doesn't. And while cinema often reflects back a wishful view of who we are, a heroic narrative of how we came to be, it often drops the ball when it comes to reflecting back to us who we really are, the parts of the story of us that are distorted, justified, or entirely left out. To dig deeper on how these themes play out today in storytelling about African Americans, I brought in a veteran of filmmaking, Roger Ross Williams. It's great to be here. I'm learning so much already on this panel, just sitting here listening to all of you. Roger is an Oscar, Emmy, and Peabody Award-winning director, producer, and writer. He was extremely busy last festival season thanks to his docuseries based on the 1619 Project with band book author Nicole Hannah-Jones. Many of the band books have been adapted for the big screen. Titles like Alice Walker's The Color Purple, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, Toni Morrison's Beloved, and Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, to name a few. Those film adaptations made powerful statements about who gets to be a hero or a villain in the story of American life. The identities that are celebrated or denigrated in the film linger in the minds of a viewer long after they've left the theater. Another tactic in manipulating our collective memory is writing people out of the American story altogether. Our guest, Holly Makaro, explained how American Indians are either misrepresented or completely omitted from much of what we see on the silver screen. She also shared the effect of this sweeping cultural erasure on young people, how it discourages them from seeing this country as theirs. Holly is an enrolled member of the Red Lake Band of the Ojibwe, with decades of experience successfully advocating for tribes in Congress. This was really a great opportunity with these great minds to talk about ways that we've come up together, that our communities are similarly impacted, how the infrastructures of democracy hold us all down. So it was really fun. Something I wanted to drive home with this conversation is that it's impossible to be an informed citizen without knowledge of your country's past. And as we see certain dimensions of the past being censored out of the public conversation altogether, it seems as though when it comes to the full and inclusive story of us, we haven't really moved beyond the McCarthy-era censorship of the 50s. Perhaps it's more accurate to say we've just acclimated to it. This is a clear and continuing threat to our democracy that all too many of us don't want to think about. You'll hear Jason Stanley, 
another of our panelists, say more about this later in the show. As the son of two Holocaust survivors, Jason knows the devastating consequence of regular folks ignoring the rise of state-sanctioned censorship. He's a philosophy professor at Yale and a prolific writer and thinker in the fields of politics, propaganda, and fascism. And just like me, he's been vocal about the link between banning art and the destabilization of the rest of our rights and freedoms. To fight for a multiracial, multireligious democracy where everybody can enjoy the freedom that a free society promises is my academic and personal mission. So this is what this panel was about, explicating, analyzing, breaking down the obstacles to that ideal. With that, folks, let's move into our main event, The Story of Us, live from Sundance. All right, we're going to get right into it. I want to start with a little clip from a show that Kamal did this year on what we're eventually going to introduce as the memory bills, the memory laws, laws that seek to dictate how and for whom we can talk about race and racism. So roll this clip. Right now, there's arguments about should we teach kids a more accurate history of America? Race Uh-oh. theory? What'd you say? Uh, Here we go. Race theory. Race theory. Race? Critical race theory. What are your thoughts on that? You could teach it without having an opinion. But is it okay if a teacher says, I think slavery was bad? Is that okay? No. 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 Okay. <laughs> well, no what about those that go, Nazis not good? Nothing is bad. Nothing's bad. No. And if the latter is how you heard about it first, then I'm not surprised you're confused is why I grind my teeth when I sleep. It's totally manipulation and manufacturing a crisis. Who's manufacturing it? The Democrats. It's always a race card. I get so sick of it. (laughs) We need to teach children to compete Mm -hmm. when the Chinese probably know more about American history than we do. So we should teach better American history here? Well... Yeah. It's like uh, the history of America. History of America. Slavery, genocide, Native Americans. No, well, no. Not that stuff? Well, not the whole thing. That's all I got, everybody. (laughs) See you later. You know, if if you walk out of here and and forget everything, please remember that part. So, obviously, you were struck, as I was, by the refrain at the end of the video, right? Teach all of it, but not all of it. Not the whole part of it. So, what is she saying? What part of it are we not supposed to teach? And importantly, why? Why? Well, first of all, I want to be clear that that episode was about the attack on wokeness in America. And you were featured in that episode because we couldn't do an episode about attack on race and theory in America without talking to Kimberly Crenshaw, everybody. So I want to be clear about that. But I didn't make you go talk to people on the streets. That's that's my job. I'm the only college dropout up here. But so that's in Arizona, maybe not surprisingly. But the idea there being that, like, I think a lot of times liberals, the left, think that, like, what they're seeing is being exaggerated or we're in our bubbles and we're like, no, nobody's really saying these things. My job in throughout my career is to go out there and talk to the people directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that woman at the end also went on to say that the Irish were treated worse than the enslaved Africans. Yeah. CNN wouldn't let me leave in the end of that clip where I walked to the camera and went, help me. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, they didn't like when I'm human. Weren't you a little surprised oh, yeah. that they would say it to you You know, I mean, no, a couple of those women, maybe all three were teachers. I want to be clear about that. Yeah. So I said, 
is it okay for a teacher to say slavery is bad? And I was sure that no matter what you think for real, you're going to tell the black guy on TV, you're going to know the right thing to say. But they said no. And I was like, let me throw them an easy one. Mm-hmm. Nazis. Mm-hmm. And they said, you couldn't Nazis. say that Nazis were bad. You can't say anything's bad is what the one woman said. You can't say anything's bad. And when you get into the place of like, there's always two sides to a story. Right. When you get into that place, it opens the door for all sorts of other nonsense to come through. So for me, yes, I'm totally shocked, which is why when I laugh, sometimes it's one of those laughs that's like, ha, 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 It is a laugh that is like, I need, I can't, I don't know how to hold this, so I'm going to release it through laughter. Yeah. So I want to come back in a second to talk about that kind of both sidesism. I mean, we, we've seen the absurdity of it with respect to the both sides of enslavement. So I want to talk about that in a minute. I'm going to turn to you, Jason. Your colleague, Professor Tim Snyder, has called called these memory laws. They are laws in which the government is trying to guide public interpretation of the past by forbidding discussion of historical facts or interpretations by providing guidelines that lead to self-censorship. And a lot of these laws use really identical language. Stories and histories are prevented that cause discomfort, guilt, anguish, Some states have even gone so far as to deputize their students to surveil their teachers and fellow classmates for what is called divisive content. So as shocking as this might be to some of us, it's not news to you, Jason. So what is happening here? So first of all, memory laws and authoritarianism go together. In every country where they're trying to extinguish democracy, they try to control the past. Because democracy is a system, by definition, that means that all of us participate in the formation of the laws that govern us. Now, what form does that participation take? Well, narrative participation is crucial. If your stories aren't told, you're not part, you're not participating in the formation of the laws. If no one knows your stories, you don't have the most compelling way to affect voting the most compelling way to affect policy formation. The function of memory laws is to tell a portion of the story. In fascist authoritarianism, what you try to do is you try to constrain the stories just to the group that matters. What group matters in the United States? Well, here in the United States, we need to think about white Christian nationalism. Or we could just talk about Christian nationalism because as you're gonna see from the definition, it is by definition white. Because Christian nationalism is the view that our founders were Christians, and they formed our laws to reflect Christianity. And the greatness of our nation is due to the fact that they were created by these founders, who were, of course, white men, to reflect Christianity. So that's the form, just like in Nazi Germany, the form of fascism was Aryans. Here, the form of fascism is white Christian nationalism. So the goal of these memory laws is to constrain the stories told to that group. That's why you see in state after state, voter suppression laws in state legislatures go together with these memory laws. And let's be clear how incoherent these memory laws are. As Kim said, no teaching should cause discomfort. However, if you exclude stories Who does that cause discomfort to? If you exclude our history, black Americans, indigenous Americans are going to feel incredibly uncomfortable. So discomfort means in these laws 
just to white Americans. So Jason, help us translate what this narrowing of the story might look like in cinematic storytelling, particularly storytelling of the battle for democracy, the images of who were the heroes in fighting for freedom and who's not. Because, you know, we've been talking about this so far in terms of education, but storytelling about who we are in its visual dimension probably influences more people than what you even learn in classrooms. So this is really important because Hollywood really has a lot to blame for the fact that it's hard for me to explain to America that we have a legacy of racial fascism, that Nazi Germany, as in my colleague Jim Whitman's book, Hitler's American Model, took the laws that robbed my father of citizenship, made, rendered him stateless in 1935 from Jim Crow. Why is it so hard to explain to Americans something that was very clear to the black press? The Pittsburgh Courier had a double V victory campaign in 1942 or 1943. Victory against fascism abroad and home. As Matthew Delmont shows, Langston Hughes in his speeches in Paris in 1937 said, you don't need to tell black Americans about fascism. Fascism is Jim Crow with a foreign accent. All the way to Toni Morrison in 1995 in her lecture, Racism and Fascism at Howard University. Black Americans have been repeatedly connecting. They were the first to blow the whistle on Kastalnacht. They were the first to blow the whistle on what was happening to my family in Europe. Is that represented in Hollywood? No. In Hollywood, Americans are the anti-fascists. They don't represent that we fought Hitler with segregated armies, that we fought Hitler with the Jim Crow that influenced the Nuremberg Laws. They create this myth that the black press was trying to fight against on behalf of all of us, that America is always anti-fascist. So when we think of fascism, we think, oh, we were the heroes that defeated it. And in fact, you know, it's an original danger here. In preparing for this conversation, you shared that so many of the World War II movies that became a genre, they have a trope of the same kind of things and the same kind of things aren't seen. You never see black troops in the World War II. There's no saving Jimbo, right? We don't get a chance to see that black folk played a significant role in fighting for democracy around the world, and yet when they came home, they were unable to achieve it here and actually were even more vulnerable to lynching and, and racial violence. So that's a set of stories that are told and not told that are contained within a genre. There's another genre that I want to talk to you about, Holly. So westerns, that's a genre um, <laughs> that does some serious telling and untelling. So what are some of the things that they foreground and things that they exclude? I'm going to do a proper introduction first, if you wouldn't mind. But Anin Buju, Bagandigishgo Kwe Indigenakaz, Makwa Nindodem, Miskwagami Wizagaganing, and Donjaba. My name is Hole in the Sky Woman. I'm Ojibwe from the Red Lake Nation in northern Minnesota. Thank you so much for having me today. And this topic of the Western genre, the dehumanization, the emotionless killings that were portrayed in the Western genre, they weren't just figments of the writer's and the director's imagination. That was actual federal policy. I looked back at the heyday of the Western genre. It was the 20s to the 60s. Those kids who watched the Western films, right? Mm -hmm. They grew up to become heads of film studios. Yes. They ran and they decided how Indians were going to be portrayed and whether we would have a voice in that portrayal. 
And I have to wonder whether their exit has anything to do with the renaissance and the access and the visibility that we're now seeing in the industry. I want to tag on to the military service as well, which is a little bit off the Western genre topic, but Native Americans serve in our military per capita at higher rates than any other community. But it also comes with those questions for us, that question of serving a country that has treated us so poorly. And my dad is a Vietnam vet. Nothing makes him prouder, but he still can't stand it when we see the treatment of Native Americans. He won't watch the movies. I want to lift up constraining the story of Native Americans to the Western. So there's both what the Westerns do, but there's also the constraint. And, and we all had on aha moments on the phone when, when you talked about how this genre limited the awareness of where Indians were. So most of the story is about Plains Indians, not the fact that Indians populated everywhere, first of all, and that much of what we now understand to be the policies of removal and genocide took place outside the scope of the, the traditional Western. So if you don't know that, then there are things about contemporary Indian issues that people don't understand. And so you were mentioning that, that in Congress, two-thirds of people are, are voting on issues that impact Indians that have no awareness, no exposure, and this is not really what we would consider or what we think in our heads when we think democracy. I wonder if you wanted to say something about that. The direct relationship that tribes have with the federal government. We have a more direct relationship than most Native Americans. The federal government on many reservations, due to what we call Public Law 280, shares sole jurisdiction for law enforcement. If you ask a Native American, they know who their U.S. attorney is. Like, Joe, citizen of the United States, doesn't usually know that. But there is an FBI agent assigned to most reservations. So we have this direct relationship as a result of the treaty-making process. And the federal government actually has this kind of competing role, both as our trustee and also as the one who uh, puts forth the laws sometimes that harm our communities. And 14 states do not have any tribes in their states. But every single member of those delegations vote on our issues. There are subcommittees in the House and in the Senate. So we have folks who their only education may be through the media about tribal issues, about contemporary Native Americans. You know, I am a contemporary Native American, and I do government affairs work in Washington, D.C. I also practice my culture and language and our religion, but I don't live in a teepee on the Great Plains. Like right now, people, have, people actually ask me that and have in the past. Are your roads paved? I can't wait for you to do that show. <laughs> Duly noted. It's coming. It's coming. I want to come to you, Roger. So one continuing theme in American mythology that's reproduced in filmic storytelling is the idea of slavery having been idyllic and in some ways it's been framed as almost romantic. It still stands that Gone with the Wind is the most successful film to date. And we also have to extend to Birth of a Nation, right? The story about what happened at the end of the slavery. Now, it could have been a tremendous story about how this American democracy transferred enslaved people into the status of citizens. But Birth of a Nation tells it as a horror story for white people. 
basically turns it inside out as a justification for the KKK. And that is still framed as one of the most, it's like foundational to film, birth of a nation, right? Absolutely. So everybody knows about the Mayflower in 1620. You're trying to get everybody to know about something that happened a year before that. So talk to us a little bit about what happened in 1619 and the storyline that begins there. Yes. The 1619 Project, the most banned project in America, is Nicole Hannah-Jones' project with the New York Times. And Nicole, when she was in high school, her only black teacher in Waterloo, Iowa, told her about the ship in 1619 carrying 20 American slaves. The 1619 Project is a reframing of the story of America that every aspect of American life has been touched by slavery, has been formed through slavery. And when I first read it, I was educated, I was moved, because it celebrates Black accomplishment and Black people and what we've given to this country. We have, through the Civil Rights Movement, through Black Lives Matter, we have upheld America to the standards that the forefathers did not. It is Black people who have fought for democracy. And that's the basis of the 1619 Project. Our premise is that is the true founding of America. So partly what we're looking at here is how the beginning of the story kind of dictates where the story goes. You start with 1620. You have a whole different story than if you start with 1619. Where you start really determines what you think the American story is. So it's not an accident that some of these memory laws actually try to dictate where we start the story, who the characters are, what the drama really is, what the tension really is. Now, here's where I want to come back to you, Roger, because I think some people would say, well, this debate really isn't about storytelling. It's about ideology. And what we are really trying to protect against is a one-sidedness in what gets told. So, Roger, what does a both-sided story around slavery sound like? If you are now producing a film with these constraints about you can tell it, but you have to tell it neutrally. How do you tell a story about slavery neutrally? You don't. <laughs> um, the first thing Nicole said to me when we started working together was that this series has to be unflinching. And we are telling the truth, the real story of America. There is no both sides to slavery. You know, the amazing thing about the 1619 Project is that this unflinching retelling of the history of America, when it came out, was the biggest phenomenon. When the 1619 book came out, it stayed number one on the New York Times bestseller list forever. People want to hear the truth, you know, and there is an army behind Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 of people who are embracing the truth and who are out there as an army of people talking about it. So even though we have gotten pushback, and we can talk about that later, um, mm -hmm. from the networks when we actually present them with the work, but people are listening and people are, are paying attention. So Holly, I'm going to ask the same question of you. What's a both sides way of telling the story of dispossession of Native people? I live on Payam territory and my husband's lands 
And our town, it's a target of the national movement to elect folks to school boards and to city councils, and then to pass these laws banning critical race theory being taught. This community that we live in is home to a very visible tribal economic enterprise with a very visible and civically engaged tribal community. And the wording of the ordinance that was passed by the school board said all the usual stuff, but also if any of the white kids felt badly, they should go to the principal's office and let them know. And I thought, my God, you know, we felt badly for so long. But telling the opposite side is we were here and some people wanted to move in and they just took it. We played this game backstage, right? So we were here, and some people wanted to move in. And, you know, they'd been on a boat for a long time, so shouldn't room be made for them. These are the two sides. The movie isn't going to take any position. The teaching of it isn't going to take any position. And if it does take a position, then it's violating the idea against divisive concepts, right? So it's forcing storytelling into a particular trope. Our favorite year is 1491, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that utopia before the colonists arrived. So come out, the media also have their version of both sidesism. They have their version of both sidesism around censorship. Can you talk about how you encountered that, either in the story that you told about critical race theory or other controversial moments in which you are trying to pull the covers back and show something about race in this country that some folks might not feel comfortable seeing. Oh, yeah. I mean, as a black man who works in media and is attempting to make intelligent, entertaining, and inclusive nonfiction television, there's the work you do on camera, but sometimes you end up doing more work off camera, and by the time you get to the camera, you're like... I'm exhausted. (laughs) Just film something. I got to take a nap. And so sometimes I find myself as a black man in showbiz, especially with people who are like in positions of authority over me. I have to have a spontaneous, quick diversity, equity and inclusion seminar that they didn't sign up for. Mm -hmm. So then I can go do the work on camera. So like we did an episode of United Shades of America about it it was a sort of a sequel to our clan episode. I think the title was what do we even do with white supremacy? We were making it in January of 2020. I don't know if anybody remembers that. We were trying to say white supremacy is a structure, not a person in a hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a lot of like some notes about, is this really, is it, I mean, isn't it really just the person in the hat? <laughs> just to be clear, when we say hat, we mean the pointy hat. Pointy hat, know? yeah, yeah. Or a MAGA hat. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so George Floyd is murdered by the police in Minneapolis, May 25th, 2020. And all of our conversation shifted because that happened. Mm-hmm. And somebody said to me at one point, like, but isn't racism really just hating a person of another race? This is a person who has authority over me. I have to very gently but clearly go, that's an old definition of racism. The definition of racism that we're operating on is the idea of prejudice plus power. And as a black person, I don't have the power to be racist. Yeah. So yeah. for me, there's a lot of time in media as black folks, as indigenous folks, as Latinx folks, as AAPI community, that you have to do the work off camera to do the work on camera. Right. And it's a delicate dance. So to be concrete, just this week, Florida decided that African-American studies cannot be taught as an advanced placement course 
It was framed as useless or valueless. And some of the people that were associated with that valuelessness, I recognize in the mirror. So as you say, you have to do a lot of work before you even get a chance to do the work, right? So why is racism not just bias? If the memory laws say you can't talk about racism in any other way than prejudice, then you can't understand the contemporary wealth disparities because you weren't able to talk about structural racism. You weren't able to talk about the creation of the suburbs with $120 billion of federal money that only went to white homeowners and not to people of color. Or you can't talk about policing. You can't talk about health care. A lot of things you can't talk about if the only way you're supposed to talk about race and racism is through the bad person with a biased mind. The question, though, is what this has to do with democracy, right? Because, yes, there are stories that can be told and not be told, and, yes, it makes a difference in how people understand the continuing role of past in the present. But, Jason, what is the connection between the efforts to suppress storytelling about this past and the efforts to attack democracy right now? So, so this links directly to Roger's point about the role of black Americans in realizing democracy. The form of authoritarianism that we have always had is this form that constrains voices just to white Christian men. And what black Americans have been doing is they've been trying to expand that on behalf of all of us. This is incredibly explicit from in the whole history from the 19th century on. Without black American voices, you only have a partial democracy because the narrative stories, the history has to be there in order for people to address policy. Let me get to the point about what happens in a democracy if you don't allow people to talk about structural racism. My colleague Jennifer Richardson has recently done some studies that show that white Americans believe that black Americans have 90% of the wealth of white Americans. The actual figure is 10%. So there is massive ignorance. And that massive ignorance is connected to a mythology that the 60s and the civil rights movement ended racism. So if you don't teach structural racism, the people who enact these laws know this. You're going to leave a majority of the country. We know this because of Richardson's work. We know that a lot of white Americans are going to think, what's the problem? (laughs) And that's the goal of these laws. These people are not fools. (laughs) They want people to see black protest, and they want them to react by saying, what are they complaining about? So there's a psychological structure that makes liberals want to think the world gets better as we progress. And guess what? It doesn't. (laughs) The big lie of post-racial America. And let's historicize it a little bit, because one of the favorite quotes that even I say a lot, Martin Luther King, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. And most of the time, you know, I want to believe that maybe at the end of the day, but it doesn't do it automatically. And it certainly doesn't do it by denying the elements of the past that continue to play out. So, come on, I want to come back to you on the feelings point, because, again, so much of this legislation focuses on feelings. But if we shift the focus, and we're not so much talking about the feelings of people who might feel implicated, but the feelings of people who are excluded, what does that imply for the things that we need to know and understand to support a multiracial democracy rather than just sit by and watch it unravel? 
You can do both. Both and. I took improv. You can tell stories that are untold, and you can implicate the guilty parties at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think shame is underestimated as an emotion, uh, <laughs> as a motivator. Yeah, I think that we shy away from shame, so I think sometimes there's pressure to tell stories of artists of color and do it in a way that doesn't hurt the white people's feelings. Mm-hmm. And I think I like hurting white people's feelings. <laughs> and the thing I like to do on that is actually then tell them what to do now that their feelings are hurt. The last thing I would hate for people to walk out of here, I'm talking to the white people right now, is we walk out and go, that was a good panel. Anyway, <laughs> without leading people, that's where I feel like I'm at now in my career, leading people to the next step. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I, I want to go back also to, to lift up one of the points that Jason was making. There was a moment in 2020 when it seemed like we were about to have a new conversation. And there was a lot of back padding, you know, a lot of this is a renaissance. And we're in 2023. And if anything has really, really happened, I would say the backlash to 2020 has been more powerful in changing the conversation than 2020's demand that we understand structural racism more fully. It's helpful to recognize that whenever there's a forward momentum, there's always been a backlash. And sometimes the backlash is more powerful than the thing that prompted it. You know, we can think about civil war, reconstruction, civil rights movement. Backlash has lasted longer than the actual movements themselves. So that's just a dynamic. And and Roger, I saw you wanting to get in there. This is another film that I'm doing, which is Ibram X. Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning for, for Netflix. It's the history of racist ideas and how they morph. The backlash, you know, an ambitious project is we start in 1452 in Portugal and uh, Prince Henry hires a writer, Zarara, to write the mythology of black people and slavery, that it's good, that slavery is civilizing black people and it's a good thing and became a bestseller. And all the other European countries, that's what they were going to follow. But there's always a backlash there's always a resistance. And we can't forget about that resistance. We can't forget about Haiti. We can't forget about all the incredible resistance movements that still continues today. And as anti-racists, that's what we have to do. You know, I'm glad you brought up George Floyd because my phone rang off the hook. I got more projects, more offers, and then it stopped. It stopped. And now they're like, oh, you know that project? You know, actually, we're going to cancel that project that we offered you then. But we can't stop the fight. We can't stop being anti-racist. Can I say one thing real quick? My best friend's a bookseller. One of the clear indicators for that is a lot of people ordered the 1619 book and a lot of anti-racist projects. Bookstores ordered those books, had them on the shelf, and a lot of people who ordered them never picked them up. It was like Mm -hmm. a common phenomenon in bookstores that like people were like, I need to read those books. And they never even took them to their house. Holly, I want to come back to you. You you were talking about how this might be the moment of renaissance in Indian storytelling. And this festival is a moment where we're seeing more Indian storytellers, narratives, themes. It does invite us to consider what the meaning of being able to see oneself be represented not just as a character, but a character in storytelling of our own making, right? So I wanted to pivot to just say for a moment that we already know how traditionally excluded groups feel. Brown versus Board of Education was based on this idea that if the story that is told to young black students is that they don't belong, 
They will never be able to participate in this democracy in the way they should, right? That's about the importance of being seen, the importance of having a story, the importance of the story that's told about you. Is this renaissance reflecting the same kind of transformative moment, you think? Yeah, there's so many things we can touch on. I want to flag that this country's constitution was written based on the ideals of the Iroquois Confederacy of the Haudenosaunee in New York. But when we talk about the structures that facilitate racism, it's not just one person hating another. These structures have facilitated injustice for Indian country for so long, particularly in the criminal justice system, where we are massively overrepresented in the federal prison system. And maybe the most egregious example of the federal criminal justice system failing us is the just horribly long incarceration of Leonard Peltier, who's in his 48th year of imprisonment for aiding and abetting a crime for whom those charged were found not guilty on self-defense grounds. This is an FBI vendetta that is facilitated by the structures in the United States that we can't get by. But when we watch reservation dogs, you know, I watched the hunting one with my dad when we were deer hunting. (laughs) And it was comical, but it's how we live on the res, right? These are communities of poverty that are impacted by structures that don't support them. Our youth are so just uninspired by some of the things that happen in the United States today, from the discoveries of our children buried in backyards of boarding schools, how can no one notice that? How can no one notice? But then you see those kids that did make it back home. These are our grandmas and grandpas, which means we are a generation of kids whose parents grew up without parents, who didn't know how to parent, know how to love, know how to discipline. And those impacts are huge for us. And so to have our youth believe in a system that has failed them so often is often uninspiring to vote, to participate in our democratic system. But all of that is why I think it's so important not only for America to see contemporary Indians and how we really live. I always say Indian country is funny. We have a great sense of humor. We are cracking jokes. You see it in Red Stocks. But if we don't laugh, we're going to cry, right? And so we're already seeing the backlash. The reality is folks are saying, if you've got a Native American-specific story, we're kind of over that right now. Yeah, yeah. Wherever there's transformation, there is the backlash. Go ahead, Jason. Just very quickly, building on what Holly said, it just occurred to me, in authoritarian countries like Russia, they try to reduce voter participation. They try to make people feel like their vote is meaningless, they're not part of the system. That's an explicit strategy. Excluding stories leads people to think, as Holly points out, that they have no role, and so they won't vote. So that's also, I think, explicit. So a lot of what we've been talking about so far is sort of external mandated limitations on the stories that can be told, but some of this should actually sound somewhat familiar from inside the industry. Not all of the limitations on storytelling actually come from law. Some of it comes from inside. So... Yeah, I'm coming to you, Roger. So um, you have been in spaces where you've probably been the only black person in the room. So we want you to report out a little bit. How do these constraints get imposed from inside the industry? You're in there. So tell us what gets said. First of all, I'm trying to think how much I can say. And we know you have constraints. This is constraint number one, right? Isn't that constraint number one? 
that I have to be careful because the people who are funding my projects and my company in One Story Up could get upset. But I'm going to not name names, but I'm going to tell you some stories. One thing I can talk about is for six years, I served on the board of the governors of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. Now, (laughs) only the second African-American elected to the board in the 100-year history of the Academy. I walk into that room and it is the most powerful people in Hollywood. I'm the governor of the documentary branch. Spielberg's the governor of the director's branch, Hank's acting branch, the heads of studio, all mostly white men. And I walk in that room and I was like, oh shit, how do I get a seat at this table? (laughs) And so what I decided that I was gonna do, I have power within my own branch. And within my own branch, I could change the membership. Changed it, the first branch, to reach gender parity from non-gender parity. A third of our branch is now international. We have more people of color. There were no members from Africa. There were three or four members from Latin America. Completely changed. And now the films that we nominate are diverse. And I go into a meeting with board members and they said, good old American films are not being nominated anymore in the documentary category. That's the way it it presents itself. Good old, good old American films. Good old American films. doing a lot to say white. Let's do it. When I... You you know it's got to say Good old. You know, it's funny. My father-in-law's good old. (laughs) When I pitch a series, a black series, and they say, our algorithms are not telling us that this series is viable. When I talk to other production companies, when I talked to people and they said, well, we can't find people of color who have the experience. Well, if you don't give them the experience, how are they going to have the experience? You know, so it's actually playing it forward and saying, I'm going to give them the experience. I'm going to vouch for them. I'm going to bring them into the fold and you are going to give them the break. And if you want to work with me, you're going to work with people of color because when is it ever going to change if we don't start the change? Thank you for sitting inside and telling us the inside stories, right? And these are the ways that exclusions of the past are structured into the contemporary moment, right? It's no big mystery. What is structural exclusion? This is that. When you normalize what you've inherited and you think it has to be that way, and when things start to change, then that becomes a problem. That's exactly the story that you're telling. Now, I promised that we were going to play a quick little game before we wrap up. Here's where the game came from. I teach a course called Race and Representation in the Law, and the idea is that what most people think they know about race and racism and civil rights, they don't get from reading a law book, and they don't get from the Supreme Court. They get from TV. They get from a scene of Anthony Hopkins walking by the bus of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington seeking their wisdom and how to resolve whether they should let enslaved black people go. Not recognizing that Washington and Jefferson didn't let their own slaves go, right? You have to have a feel-good moment in the movie. You have to have certain kind of characters. So what we do sometimes is we have our own Academy Awards for the best performance. It's the best category of a storytelling about our racial history. I'm going to get in trouble. My publicist is going to yell at me. But I've gotten in trouble for this before. The White Savior and the Green Book. 
best white savior. Okay. Atticus Finch, between that and the Green Book, Atticus used to win all the time in my class, but now the guy in the Green Book gives him a run for the money. Any other character or trope or narrative thing that pretty much always appears? Sidekick. Sidekick. Okay. Person of color as the best friend. Or your Native American sidekick who is gazing at the stars and also (laughs) providing you spiritual relief upon command. Yes. Kamal, you got uh, one? That there's only two races in a movie, mm. and one of them has to be white. <laughs> so if you do a movie about the black community, you'll see white people, but you may not see Latinx people. Mm-hmm. If you do a movie about the indigenous community, you'll see indigenous people, you'll see white people, but they don't know no black folks. Right. So the idea that there's always, that white is always the other reflection of a different race, which is why I'm going to shout out a local boy who's made pretty good, Ryan Coogler, Wakanda Forever. Yes. It's like... I really did a great job of putting the, you know, they had a couple good whites in there. Julia Dreyfus is a legendary white. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> She's top tier white. She's one of the good ones. But the idea that multiracial means something in white. Okay. Jason, you got one? I'll get in trouble. Okay, yeah. If you're saying that it's going to be in trouble, I believe you. All right, we're going to keep this one a secret. So, you know, as I mentioned, the places where there's more effort to erase history are also places where there's an effort to erase political power. We can be responsible for our democracies in reading the things that those who are anti-Democrats don't want us to read, in telling the stories that those who want to suppress stories don't want to be told. That is a project for all people who are concerned about the unraveling of our democracy. Now, since Jason didn't play the game with us, we're going to let him have the last word here. In some of these states, there is both an anti-memory law and at the same time an anti-Holocaust denial law, and it might give you a headache trying to figure out how these two things work together. So on the question of how to understand the need for allyship in this moment, Jason, what can you share with us as concluding thoughts? First, as a child of two Holocaust survivors, I want to express my fury that these laws draw a moral equivalence between critical race theory and Holocaust denial, which is repugnant. But secondly, on allyship, I mean, first they came for the socialists, and I'd said nothing because I was not a socialist. That still is the most important thing to remember. Think about the form of fascism in the United States, white Christian nationalism. It places men over women. It's anti-LGBT. It's anti-indigenous because it says that this is the most glorious nation since the Christian men founded it. It's anti-black. It's anti-Muslim. It's anti-Jewish. It's anti-Semitic. So we stand or fall together. There's always going to be a desire to not be a target. That's understandable. History shows that minority groups are pitted against each other because each minority group wants to not be a target. We stand or fall together. Thank you, Jason. Please join me in thanking my panelists, Mal, Holly, Roger, and Jason. Thanks to Sundance. Thanks to Pat, to Tabitha, to everybody at AAPF and all the wonderful staff at the Sundance Film Festival. And thanks to all of you. This episode of Intersectionality Matters was produced by senior producer Nicole Edwards and the team at the African American Policy Forum. Mixing by Sean Dunham. To support our show, subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on social media. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw. We'll be back soon.
Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.